Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We're here today with Dr. Simon Chen, a professor at the University of Ottawa and a renowned researcher of the motor cortex and memory encoding. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chen. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so for our first question, can you give us a little background of your educational and career history? Uh, yes, so um, I did my undergrad and PhD at the University of British Columbia. And I finished my uh, PhD in 2012. And after that, I moved to uh, UC San Diego in California uh, to continue my postdoctoral research. And I was there for four years before I got an assistant professor position uh, here at UOTO. And so my training has always been in neurobiology. My undergrad degree is in cell biology with a focus in neuroscience. And then I got my PhD in neuroscience. My postdoctoral training is in neuroscience as well. Very cool. Well, we're happy to hear you landed back in Canada. That's great that you're here in Ottawa now. So for my next question, what kind of research do you do in your lab uh, regarding the motor cortex and what are some of your most significant findings thus far? So in our lab, the main question we want to study is how does the brain acquire and maintain a new motor skills? So I always like to describe to people that, you know, one day when you and I want to go play golf or play tennis, you know, we know how to hold a golf club or a tennis racket. But to able to serve and or uh, the ball really far and very straight, that's a new motor skills uh, we, we're acquiring. Right? And then so motor memory is very different than other forms of memory, such as reward or fear. In those forms of memory, you get it really fast. Right? You, you eat something you really like or you, you got something scared, then you remember that very well. But then over a long time, if you don't experience that feeling, you might forget. But motor learning is very different. Motor learning, you take some many, many practice, right? but once you get good at it, you don't forget. So if you haven't skied for many years, and then now you go to the Mount Trombone, you still remember how to ski. So the, that means the brain must acquire uh, the fear and reward memory different than how we acquired motor memory. And so what we want to study is how does the brain acquire motor memory over such a long period of time? And so, since I started my lab here at UAltua, uh, I would say we have two very significant findings. Well, the first one is that was just recently published in Neuron, where we found in the motor cortex, there's a, a group of inhibitory neurons that sort of acts like a break uh, to choose and fine tune the motor cortex of which motor movements is the best for the motor skill you're learning. So let's say when we first start playing golf, you might hit the ball in 10 different ways or 100 different ways, right? And then, so there must be some kind of mechanisms that help your brain to narrow down to the movement that will help you to hit the ball very far. So we found a group of inhibitory neurons in the brain that's involved in helping the brain to fine tune down to the movement that uh, is suitable for you. And then you become very stereotyped uh, for that movement. So that's the first uh, major finding in, in my mind. And then the second one that we found uh, is actually in a mouse a disease model, uh, uh, specifically autism spectrum disorders. So normally uh, children with autism spectrum disorders, they tend to have a slower uh, in motor skill development that they learn how to play uh, uh, throw and catch um, or other motor skills involved games compared to normal kids. And then so that also 
uh, affect their daily life because they, they might not be confident to play with other kids when they learn things very slow. And then, so what we found is that there's actually a deficit in the motor cortex and it's contributed by this uh, neuromodulatory system called noradrenaline or norepinephrine. So we found in this specific mouse model of autism uh, called 16P11.2 microdeletion, which is also found in human patients, that the mice, they also show a delayed in motor learning. And then we found it's actually due to less of this noradrenaline release in the uh, to the motor cortex. So when we use a, a specific uh, manipulation to stimulate noradrenaline release in these mouse models with 16P11.2 deletions, we can actually reverse the delay motor learning. So now these mice learn as good as the wild type. Yeah, so I would say in the past six years, these are probably the two most uh, interesting findings from my lab. Wow, those are both fascinating. I mean, what you said about those uh, group of inhibitory neurons that kind of like, like you said, fine tune the system when you're learning a new skill. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I recently just started playing golf and I find I'm, I'm terrible at it. I, every time I swing differently and I've only played like a handful of times, but you can see how that kind of goes along with practice makes perfect. The longer you go, it's your brain actually fine tuning. And people always use the term muscle memory, but I guess it's a lot less uh, muscle well, memory and neuron yeah, memory. Yeah, the muscle memory comes once you fine tune to a specific, right? And then, so that's what, so I was talking to other uh, professor the other day and then, so there's always saying the bad habits um, is also inherited. So let's say if you play golf and then, you know, you never bend your knees and then, you, and then eventually you have this bad habits. That bad habit is motor memory too, right? So the fine tune doesn't just do the good things. The fine tune also do the bad things. So, so once you fine tune, you know, your bad habits, then that becomes a mu mu uh, muscle memory that it's hard to uh, reverse. That is a very good point. I didn't think about it that way too. It definitely has the reverse effect. Um, and as well, your research that you've done in uh, uh, disease models in mice uh, regarding autism, uh, I would have never imagined. It seems so simple when you put it in terms of what you found. I'm sure it took a lot of work, but uh, to just realize that it had to do with the deficit in that, is it hormone or norepinephrine or? It's a neuromodulator. Wow, yeah, that was very fascinating. So for my next question, can you explain what neuronal plasticity is and the role that it has in the motor cortex? So neuroplasticity, actually, we probably just touched upon already. So neuroplasticity refers to a term that the brain is plastic. So I think for a very long time, you know, before the 80s, people think the brain is, once it's wired, it is what it is, right? And then people always say, oh, you know, you have that many brain cells. If they die, then you lose your functions of the brain. And then starting in the 80s, you know, people started thinking that, find, finding that the brain is actually plastic it can be shaped uh, based on experience. Um, and then, so this idea become more and more uh, studied and then people found, okay, learning changes the brain connections, experience changes the brain connections. And then, so that brings to the motor cortex when we say the brain's fine tuned, that's also plasticity, right? So it's not like, so if we say the brain is hardwired, so that means, that would means when we are born, we're born with 100 movements. Right? And then we just routinely use this 100 movements in our daily life, but that's not the case. So we learned that you know, we can learn the new motor skills, new motor movements, and then this, it can be fine-tuned into a stereotype movements that, that we usually do. So that, that's neuroplasticity. It's the brain is plastic to be changed. Seems like a pretty important underlying concept in the work that you do. 
for my next question, what are some potential applications of your findings uh, and how can they help revolution our understanding of treatment of certain brain diseases and just the motor cortex in general? So in my lab, uh, I would say we're still more a basic neuroscience lab that uh, we try to find the mechanisms that happen in normal uh, brains or in the disease brains. But the implications can be, uh, for example, for this um, inhibitory neurons that I was telling you about, that you can imagine uh, when people have a stroke and then they lose the ability uh, to do the movement that you used to do. And then so when they do, when they do go through rehabilitations, try to relearn that movement, if we know specifically which group of disinhibitory neurons are involved, then perhaps we can find a way to stimulate them or inhibit them or inhibit the others so we can help the fine-tune process uh, to be faster, right? To be faster because we know these inhibitory neurons can facilitate uh, the learning process, which is also the rehabilitation process when people have stroke. And then in the, in the uh, autism spectrum disorders, we think what the, our identification of this uh, uh, dysfunction of noradrenaline, we can also uh, try to find drugs that are approved by the FDA and then apply them in mice to see whether a systematic injection of uh, drugs that can boost up noradrenaline functions, whether that can help um, uh, kids with autism um, you know, to, uh, to improve their motor skill development uh, without having any side effects. Although my lab, we don't directly test this, um, that would be the implications that other researchers, when they read our papers, they can apply to their, uh, their work. Yeah, very much. It's fascinating to know that you pioneered all these concepts that could have like great potential medical applications. I mean, there are so many people out there who are like suffering from strokes or different neurodegenerative diseases and um, as well as like autism spectrum disorder. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool to see that you've pioneered the work that uh, could set up new treatments for these people. Uh, and my next question is, uh, you use a lot of different techniques uh, when you're researching in your lab. I was curious, what are some different methodologies that you use to investigate? So the core technique that in my lab um, and that's, that was one major reason I was hired at UAltua is we have this technique called in vivo two photon imaging. And so basically it's a, a very uh, fancy microscope that uses uh, pumps uh, lasers to into the brain. And then so we can actually uh, visualize the mouse's brain at neuronal level, which is about 20 microns or subcellular level at two micron in the brain. And then so basically when, when the mouse is, uh, we do like a neurosurgeon surgery to the mouse. So we do a craniotomy on their head. Um, and then once they recover from the surgery, they basically have this permanent uh, glass window that's implanted uh, right above their motor cortex. Um, and then so when you apply this microscope on top of that window, you can actually visualize a live neuronal cells in live animals. And then, so basically, um, compared to what people usually know about, you know, in vivo imaging, like fMRI in human patients or in animals, about one foxhole of those F fMRI, we can probably identify a few hundred neurons inside that foxhole. So basically, whatever we see from fMRI, that one square of signals is actually a summation of hundreds of uh, brain neurons activity. So, so when you can probe uh, those hundred neurons activities, then it gives you more uh, power to understand how does the brain works. 
that is such a fascinating technique. How long have you been working on that in your career? Is this pretty recent? So I learned that uh, when I was a postdoc at UCSD. Um, so since 2012, but I've been using this two photon microscope uh, since I was a PhD student. Yeah. That is very cool. I'm sure it's a very helpful tool. It sounds, it sounds pretty neat. Okay, so for my last question, I wanted to know, uh, you're a very successful researcher, uh, and I wanted to know if you had to give some advice to students who want to pursue medical research, uh, what would you say to them? I would say um, to both students who want to pursue a career in medical or in science is uh, chase the question uh, you like and you're interested, but don't, don't chase it for because I want to cure a disease. Okay, because a lot of, I know a lot of students, they come in, maybe they want to go to med school, maybe they have a, a very, like, you know, they have relatives that have a disease they want to cure. Um, but then that usually frustrates them because um, the question is too big, you know, and then so they feel whatever I do, I'm just moving a tiny bit in the field or might not even contribute to the field. But they don't understand is that if you're just interested in these questions, eventually what you find and what you study will contribute to the field. Like I just told you earlier, the things that we think we found is very interesting and important, someone might use that information and apply to clinical studies, right? So uh, as a scientist, uh, you, you should pursue the career just because you're curious and, and you're interested in, in um, finding the answer of a question, but don't set your goal uh, too big or too much because um, you, will first, you will be frustrated uh, along the way. Yeah. That is some very good advice. And I think you make a very good example of that as well, because you're not chasing after a specific disease or curing a specific disease, but because of the work you're doing, you're setting a path for people to build off of that. And because science yeah. is so connected, whatever discoveries they make based off your research, you had a very big role in that. I yeah, and also one step, one step at a time. And then, so maybe after 30 years, I'm in the field, then my small steps will add up and then one day maybe I, I might collaborate with people and start doing clinical work, right? But you cannot jump uh, right away, you know, from, from undergrad or from first year graduate students. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful interview. It was so fascinating to hear all the work you've been doing here at UOttawa. I can't wait to yeah. see what you guys get up to your in your lab in the future. Okay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chen. That's it for this week of Sci Section. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, and make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms and our website, Humans in Science, for our latest interviews.